Hi, I'm Biff Naked, and this is Talking Blues. I often begin my interviews just by asking how you first got into music. I first got into music quite by accident. I was in my first year of university in Winnipeg, um, where I was taking theater as a major. I was in musical theater, but never had any intention of being a singer uh, for any great <laughs> length of time. Um, and some fellows that I met in university had a world music band, and they had about five different female vocalists and asked me to join them. Uh, for a performance, and they had like 13 drummers, and it was congas, bongos, uh, tabla, timbali, everything, and they would do some Sufi songs, they would do um, traditional, you know, Guatemalan songs, they would do folk music, uh, you know, for me it was a really gentle and nurturing introduction into being a vocalist as part of a group. Uh, even though both of my parents were in church choirs our whole lives, I have an older and a younger sister, uh, we kind of found it annoying that they had the <laughs> church re rehearsals and we were obligated to attend the Methodist church with them every Sunday uh, because, of course, they were in the choir. But it was never something that I wanted to do. And and this, uh, this nurturing uh, introduction in university was uh, really, I think, a perfect... Uh, a perfect welcome into the world of being a vocalist. And then one of the drummers, who of course had the most striking mohawk and was six foot five, uh, you know, of course I was completely enamored with this individual. He had a punk band. They had a show booked and their singer bailed, as uh, some would say singers are wont to do. And so I filled in. And as they say, the rest is history. I just, uh, I never stopped singing with that band and then dropped out of university uh, without too much consultation with my parents and went on tour. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you did play the piano when you were young. Yes, the Lilla Fletcher piano course uh, instructional way of doing it. I think I made it to about the sixth grade. Um, and was there any connection to music or the piano at that point, or was it more a forced thing by your parents? Well, it was kind of forced. You know, I'm, I'm lucky because my parents, you know, I don't think them being academics was why they put their daughters in arts, uh, but I really gravitated towards all of the arts programs that we did. So I thought I would be a ballerina. I was doing dance from about the age of three or four until I was in my senior year of high school. And, and really, I thought that that's what I would do until I was cast in Goldilocks in the sixth grade. And that was it. Uh, I liked Eddie Murphy. I thought he was very funny. And I was Goldilocks, the star of the show. Uh, and that was it. I was sold on acting. And that's really what I pursued was theater. A uh, little bit of dance still, but theater really was where my heart was headed. And you've also done some acting since then, right? I have. You know, I've been very lucky, but I found ultimately music for me was a great vehicle uh, for my lyric writing and my poetry writing that I had kind of always done since I was a kid. And, uh, and it was a perfect performance medium for me uh, to get anything that I wanted to say out. And punk rock particularly, sometimes 
leans into being a little bit political. And that was something that really resonated with me. I could, uh, you know, do all these anthemic type of songs that were protest songs or, or songs, you know, denouncing injustice. And it just really, uh, it was a good fit. Did you have, I mean, it doesn't sound like you had any desire to be a singer while you were growing up. None. So, so when this opportunity presented itself um, in world music, what was that adjustment like? Oh, well, you know, I think that uh, because, again, it was uh, punk rock, um, you know, it didn't seem like it would be that difficult. It wouldn't take too much training, not any classical vocal training. Uh, but the truth is, um, to sustain the voice on tour, and uh, back then we slept in the van, we were paid in beer many times, um, and this would be night after night after night after night, and I learned very quickly that I would lose my voice uh, within a couple of shows, and if we have 30 shows uh, back-to-back ahead of us, I can't take that um, take that chance, so I had to quit socializing. I stopped drinking alcohol because I just simply talk too much, and uh, I just had to learn the hard way um, to try and protect my vocal cords. I also had to learn how to sing in a way that I could be very loud. I have a very loud voice uh, without um, doing it incorrectly so that I kept straining my vocal cords. So when I started in Gorilla Gorilla, was the name of the first band, I always sang with my hand on my diaphragm for all of these uh all of these shows, and I didn't, I, I always used a microphone stand, so I would always be seen, you know, like Napoleon Bonaparte with my hand like that, but it was really to, to create an awareness for myself when I sang, to always sing from here, and, uh, and that's really been the, uh, the greatest thing I learned, because it did give me that endurance for some of these early tours, especially that were very rustic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... When when you were singing in, in in the punk band in Gorilla Gorilla, did you know? Did you have a goal, other than let's do another gig and let's make sure we have food on the table? Well, you know what I found, and I think it still really does ring true today. Is even if I had a plan to return to my studies and return to university, there were always a milestone I needed to get to like another show Mm -hmm. or we would do a show we have two shows this month and next month and then there there's a possibility we have a tour which at the time you know when we were younger three weeks was like a huge tour and um it was those little milestones that kept you in the game I used to call it even though we would lament being absolutely poor uh and when we were young we always had to live with boyfriends or roommates, or both, in order to be able to afford a place to live. Sometimes we had day jobs. Uh, I was a dishwasher uh, in Winnipeg for a while, and that was loads of fun. I loved it. Um, I don't know. And I was uh, worked in a printing shop when we first moved to Vancouver. And then one day, uh, the touring uh, was in the way, and I had to leave my occupation and make that jump right. into being a starving artist. Uh, and that was, I guess it would have been like 1993 or 94. But did you think, was there like a band that you would hope to reach a status of? Like, did, like I know that there were a lot of 
big punk bands or whatever, and I don't know how, how mm-hmm. well they did. But from your point of view, did you look up to certain bands and say, think to yourself, this is, that's where I want to be. That's the goal. Well, I think certainly, you know, we were able to play with bands like Bad Religion and, and do opening mm-hmm. gigs for them and Fishbone, which would never have been, that would be beyond my dreams at that at that point. It wasn't until I became a solo artist, and again, that was something I had never anticipated. I didn't dream of being a solo artist. Uh, the manager for my band uh, at the time, I, I was in a, a band after my first band. My second band was called Chrome Dog, and they were more uh, Vancouver, uh, Pacific Northwest sounding, more thrash, more like Seattle sound, uh, which was something that I was gravitating toward because we had moved there to the Pacific Northwest. And um, my manager of that band, Peter, said, I've got a guy that phoned me who wants to give you a record deal, uh, but just you. You know, he doesn't want the band uh, with you. And I had just been debating whether or not to leave the group because they were, we were constantly fighting about my lyrics because they didn't want me to write lyrics from a girl's perspective, uh, which I tried to respect initially, but uh, eventually it, it was the beginning of the end for that band. So, but At this point, are you thinking that this is what you're going to be doing as a career? Never. Oh, no, I still thought I would go back to university 100%. And uh, I thought I would be in academics. I didn't know if I was, you know, my father would have preferred I went into uh, dental surgery like him. But, of course, he was a socialist, so he's a public health dentist. Um, But really, I thought I would go back to university. I really thought that it was just for the meantime. I thought it was because, you know, I'm young. I should do this when I'm young. And I also really enjoyed it a lot. Again, that um, opportunity to perform every day, every night, uh, really was a good fit for me. I really loved it. And I kind of started to learn that as a female and the type of music that we were doing, it was kind of unique uh, at that time anyway. And uh, so we were gaining a lot of ground and getting a lot of attention. And once I was starting to do a solo album, work with a producer in a fancy studio, well, then things started to change a lot for me, and I started to take it more seriously. Not until then? Not until then. If, if one thinks of, or if I think of punk bands, there's a certain uh, ideal and certain ideas that come to my mind. What, what was it about punk that connected with you? Well, I think for us it was um, that credibility that we felt from our little punk peers and really it's so funny how it goes I'm sure it's the same today uh, with young bands that are in a bit of a scene in their town Um, it was just very validating and uh, we really only played for the respect of the other bands and uh, it was just somehow seemed like a good fit I never assumed for one second I could be a pop artist even though in Canada particularly Uh, in the 90s, it kind of all blended together. And that was also that era in music, in popular music, was really cool because uh, Generation X kids listened to everything. Mm -hmm. They listened to reggae, to Vivaldi, uh, you know, to Social Distortion, to to Madonna. You know, it was really, really great. Right. I'm just going to go back a little bit. 
I, 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 I understand that your, the first album that was given to you was the Judas Priest album. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and your sister was into Motley Crue. Yes, my older sister loved Motley Crue. So there's a lot of heavy metal there. And again, this is because I think it was the late 80s. Mm-hmm. So even though we also listened to Culture Club and, uh, you know, whatever was on the radio, Holland Oates, Madonna, um, yeah, starting to get into like Judas Priest, Iron Maiden. And then when glam uh, rock came out with Motley Crue, I mean, that was such a, a, a mind-blowing group for a lot of kids like us who were in junior high school or even elementary school. And that was a different sound than anything we'd heard. And plus, they were outrageous. Mm-hmm. You know, the Shout at the Devil was the outrageous thing to <laughs> sing along to. And it really irritated my parents. Uh, so that was fantastic. And that was before I ever discovered punk rock. Okay, so once you offered this opportunity to record on your own, tell me about the thought process. Now you have to think, i got to leave the band. But what else are you thinking? Like, all of a sudden, you're becoming a solo artist. Did, did the history or whatever you had with the previous bands, do you think that was to your benefit? Like, did you have a following that you would bring along with you as a solo artist? Uh, at the time, I think that it was very alienating, uh, to be honest. I had a lot of guilt. Um, and also, I was accused of being a sellout, you know, because as soon as you sign a record deal, and back then, any band that signed a record deal was a sellout, <laughs> according to the other bands. Right. Uh, so for me to have been the only female in the scene to begin with, and then the, the band kind of was unraveling, and then for me to go on with this opportunity, well, it was a scandal, uh, to say the very least. I was committing high treason. And so I wrestled with that. Uh, but, um, you know, once we were uh, overseas touring <laughs> on my first European tour, I forgot all about it and, in fact, used some of the very musicians that I used to play with in my solo project. Uh, so eventually it, it all kind of worked out in a way, but it was, uh, it was very daunting. It was hard for me to uh, kind of self-identify as a solo artist named Biff Naked. And I, I had a lot of nerves about it. I was very nervous uh, whenever I performed in my hometown. I'm, I'm not familiar with your previous bands, but the first album that you did, I don't automatically think of it as all what I would imagine to be punk rock. Is I was, that correct? That is absolutely okay. correct. And I was very, very lucky because uh, the first producer... Uh, John Dexter also owned this record label called Plum Records, and they were distributed by A&M Records in Canada. And so I co-wrote with John, and we used a couple songs uh, from my uh, band that I had come from, uh, which was great that they made the album. Um, But John would basically write a song on piano uh, with me in the room and say, you know, what does that make you think of or what comes to you? And literally, that's how we collaborated. And I was very accustomed to collaborating with three other people in the room, four-piece bands. And so I was very comfortable with that. I always just always enjoyed my part, which was lyrics and melody, singing melody. And does, does that come too easy to you? Very easy. Melody? I love it. It's so, it's just anything you can hum along to, you can, you can create a song about. Like, I've always kind of maintained my belief that anyone can sing. 
And anyone can write a song. A song okay, can you haven't be, heard me sing. <laughs> a song can be anything. It really can, you know. And uh, and maybe you know maybe I should blame my parents for that. My father sang a barbershop quartet, also. So he was a tenor and loved to harmonize with anything he heard at any time, wherever you were, no matter who was around much to the embarrassment of his three daughters. <laughs> and my mother, she hummed a lot in the kitchen. So I think that sense of melody and counter-melody was just something that just kind of came naturally um, from my environment growing up. Uh, but it was, uh, it was fun, and it was fun to make a record uh, for this first record that was very eclectic, style-wise. And that was really important to me because I... I liked everything. There was a there was a song with rap and scratching on the first record. There was a heavy metal song. There was a punk song. You know, there was a piano ballad. I just thought, and it set the tone uh, for every record that followed was equally as diverse and eclectic. However, it was very difficult uh, for business people, for industry people, uh, record companies to kind of get a handle on what this tattooed girl is doing. And they used to tell my manager, she has to pick a genre. And my manager said, she doesn't have to pick a genre. She's biff naked. You just hear it and you expect anything. And uh, and that was to my detriment for a long time. So uh, when Was it something you were frustrated with? Um, not really. I mean, I, I felt good about it. I wanted to be diverse. Uh, but when we finally put out the first record, the record company folded uh, because my producer at the time, you know, moved to Los Angeles. He was also a songwriter and an artist himself, so uh, he wanted to pursue that at that time. And A and M, who is a distributor, uh, were not interested in in picking up this already made product. So. We were kind of uh, bereft mm -hmm. in a way. And then uh, my manager just said, you have to form a record company and we'll just do it ourselves. And so that's how Her Royal Majesty was born in 1994. And we couldn't license it in Canada. No one was interested. So we licensed it to a dance label in Germany called Adel Records. And, uh, and we went over there and toured. How did they do over there? It was fantastic. They were distributed by Roadrunner, and uh, we toured with a band. My first tour over there was with a, a New York band called Life of Agony, uh, and they were rising stars over there. They had the drummer for Typo Negative, and you know they created a lot of buzz. And so to be on those shows on support, it was ten and a half or twelve weeks of Europe, and it was trial by fire. Uh, it was tour buses, and it was, you know, um, having beer steins thrown at my head <laughs> every night and learning how to dodge that, and I never took it personally. Uh, so why wouldn't you take it personally? Uh, because I thought that was because I had cut my teeth basically touring in punk rock bands, right. and I I could I had had to deal with that in the past. I had to deal with fighting on stage. I was assaulted on stage. Um, but back then we didn't call it that, you know, it was never called anything. There was no, uh, there was no boundary like that where, you know, a female singer could just simply stop the show because a stage, uh, diver had, you know, tried to grab her breast. You know, that wasn't even that, 
you can't like show any, you know, being upset by that. We just kept going on with the show or try and kick him in the butt when he's leaving. Um, and so, yeah, it's nothing I would have ever taken personally, but it was definitely, uh, it was, it was a frustrating tour and, uh, to have a successful show every night meant you had to keep going. You had Mm -hmm. to carry on, never stop the show. And also, uh, I found when I got very nervous, my manager used to accuse me of talking like Eddie Murphy all the time. Uh, he said, why are you doing comedy in between these songs? Don't talk. He would say, don't talk at all, because it's just you're betraying the tough image that you need to have on these big festivals. Um, so, And we would also play probably uh, drop the key to make the sound sound even heavier. So there are tricks that we did to gain acceptance in a tougher audience, and uh, and it was fantastic. And after that tour, then when we came back to Canada, uh, we wound up with a, a record deal, and then we started making uh, Ibificus. Uh, you talked about that image on stage and being a tough girl. Yes. Is, is that you? Is that is sure? This an image I think or? that sure, especially in the early days. I think I had to have an element of tomboy. Uh, to me to be able to kind of navigate some of these audiences you know they were uh, they were often very impolite uh, but they you know they didn't suffer fools they don't want to see uh, a regular girl up there just uh, you know scantily clad or uh, you know I, I felt like I had to act twice as tough to earn half their respect mm-hmm. and it, it, in punk rock and in hard music it was more about gaining their respect as a female than anything else. That was, for me, that was the victory. That would be the victory of every show, is that, that I felt like they had uh, somehow turned and it suddenly, you know, stopped being misogynistic or sexist and it started being just 100% about respect. Well, was that tough to, like, to be a musician and hoping to be taken seriously and having to deal with all that. And maybe because it was the punk scene or maybe it wasn't, but but did you ever question what you were doing and and never. You know, it was so much fun and and I still feel that way with the audiences. I still uh I long for the days of the mosh pits uh <laughs> when we didn't have to worry about the insurance of a venue. Right. You know, those uh, those days, we used to stage dive ourselves. And uh, that's kind of an end of an era. It really depends on the show. Um, but that was just, that was the measure of, you know, how uh, how cool you are. When when you did the second album, was that when you got more noticed and more popular? Is that the I turning think so, point? because uh, when we started writing the second record, uh, that's when we wrote Spaceman. And um, that song was earmarked uh, by Michael Kaplan, who was at Sony 550 in New York. And he just heard it on acoustic. We were, had written it and Moment of Weakness on acoustic guitar and, and just singing on a little cassette tape demo that we sent to him. It was a four-track. And he phoned and said, I booked a flight. I'm coming, I'm coming to Vancouver. I have to meet this girl, and we have to do a record deal. And I could, that was Celine Dion's label. That's all I knew. I mean, yes, Social Distortion and some other bands that I really liked were on this label, but that was Celine Dion. She was on the label. I was like, I couldn't believe it. And I thought, this is the, I can die happy. And they, uh, they chose a, uh, 
producer for me. His name was Glenn Rosenstein. He wouldn't fly in a plane. He had to come to Vancouver on a train. And he was amazing. And we worked in the armory uh, for many weeks. Uh, he brought his, uh, his favorite mixer with him, this fellow from Los Angeles named John Pertoker. And, uh, and it was just, it was an incredible experience. It was uh, several weeks. There was no auto-tune. You know, if, if Glenn wanted something to be correct, I had to sing it a hundred times until he was happy, even if it was one word. And, uh, and that process, and I'm not the type of person that will say no or, say, or argue with anybody. I'll just keep doing it. And it was a real learning curve uh, to make music and work with a producer who really had uh, something in mind um, and I never questioned him because I thought that is his job. That is why they have chosen him. Uh, even though Moment of Weakness, for example, was a ballad. It was written as a ballad almost sounding like, uh, I don't know, Patsy Cline. It was very, very lilting and uh, soft song. And he turned it into what at the time I called a no doubt song. And I was somewhat appalled and outraged, <laughs> but I never would have argued with him about it. Uh, at the time, I just would have kept doing it, which is what we did. And of course, the song turned out to be the single in the U.S. Uh, that became an MTV buzz clip. And now when we perform acoustic shows, we perform it in its original way, mm -hmm. uh, which is a ballad. And uh, same with Spaceman. You know, we perform Spaceman acoustically. And that's another example of a producer taking your raw ballad and making it into something that is uh, timeless and uh, more worldly, you know. It, it really does, it really showed me that's why they are producers. They're like, they're magicians, and they have a vision for the song that I could not have ever had. Uh, I couldn't have imagined those songs in that way. So it was a great learning curve for me. But did you know that you had, in that four-song cassette, EP. Did you know that you had something special? Um, no. I mean, I just, and again, it's these little milestones that keep you going without the big picture behind it. Um, and Michael Kaplan coming and doing that record was amazing. And then we flew to New York uh, to meet with uh, uh, the, the company president. And, uh, and everything seemed to go fine. And then we got home, and she decided to shelve the record that they spent $500,000 making. Wow. And they just decided to, to shelve it. And that was the first time, I think, in my career, I think I was 25 years old, um, I felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me. I was, I was shocked. I was shocked. Do they even give you a reason? or? I think it was due to, uh, I mean, it could have been a number of different factors. It could have been the, you know, starting Sony 550 may have started to unravel by that point because the label, you know, went through a lot of different changes and she didn't know anybody any favors anymore or whatever the case was. But luckily for us, uh, our friends from Edel Records in Germany had already moved over to Epic in Germany, who was also working with Sony. So the, basically, we were able to move that record over to Epic and, and Sony Germany and go over there and start touring that record over there. And by the time we got back to Canada with Ibificus, then it was picked up by Aquarius Records in Canada, and we started 
moving in that direction. And by that time, uh, Jason Blum had heard of the record, and he was at Atlantic, Lava Atlantic. So it didn't come out in the States again until it was re-released in 1998. And in Canada, it was 96. So that young girl who was playing the grungy punk bars, (laughs) sitting in a van touring across Canada, um, I presume the business of music was basically playing live and that's it. Now you're dealing with heavyweights like Sony and Mm -hmm. whatever. What was that like, that transition of being this musician, trying to make a living, and then being signed by a huge major label? Well, lucky for me, I had a manager already in place. So it was something that I never really had to worry about. I mean, my job was always singing first, mm. performing. And, uh, and I, I'm a social person. Uh, I love meeting people. I, I'm very chatty. So for me, it was really fantastic. Um, I got along with every... I always kind of looked at everyone at the label as my coworkers. Uh, because really, it's a, always a team effort. My mm-hmm. job is to sing. This person's job is to uh, call the radio stations. This person's job is this. And uh, and I loved everyone I worked with. And uh, the manager's job was to make sure everything was going smoothly and correctly. And he had a co-manager in the U.S., John and Marcia Zizula. And it was just a really well-oiled machine. And I... I never felt uh, daunted ever, Uh, I think, because, you know, managers really, they're like surrogate parents, you know, for an artist. And uh, and now as I'm older and going into managing young artists, I look to my own history and uh, and I know that advocating for an artist uh, means really making them feel secure enough uh, so that they can just concentrate on their art. And you felt like you were able to do that throughout. Absolutely. Wow. I had no other way. I, I, it was all I knew. You know, that was all my lived experience was, was having these adults, these grown-ups, you know, always able to deal with the business. So what's it like having a song like Spaceman that becomes a hit when, when you must have been at one point strumming the acoustic guitar and playing it? very quietly and it's just a song out of your mind it's wild because at the time in the 90s you know there were a lot of different uh grants Mm -hmm. in canada that artists could utilize and i was able to make a video for all of these songs and uh, the spaceman video got played on high rotation and so it was uh it was kind of funny in a way because my mother could tell me that she saw it on tv or her friend saw it on tv and there is really nothing like the power of television, especially back then. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing even comes close. And, and it may still be true today, or at least for a little while longer. Uh, but that really changed everything where, I don't know, I, I couldn't walk the dogs by myself anymore <laughs> uh, because I would have, right. uh, you know, girls following me down the street or... Uh, which was very flattering and quite lovely, but at the same time, you know, it it became a little bit, um, it became kind of like every minute was work Yeah. for a little it's while. It's intrusive. But that's part of the job. But I, I would presume some people would just hate that. 
It would be very I'm difficult sure some people who are not social like me, some people who are shy or anxious or a- anything like that, it would probably suck. And I always thought, you know, I was really lucky, to be honest with you, to be A, in Canada most of the time, uh, but B, that it wasn't like insanity. Mm-hmm. Like I remember hearing that uh, an actress, uh, Jennifer Aniston, and this is back when Friends uh, show first started. So right. she's just starting to get all that fame and momentum. And people would go to her parents' house and go through her parents' garbage. Wow. And I remember hearing that and thinking, okay, I'm never going to complain. <laughs> because that would, that would be the worst yeah. if people were harassing my parents or har- harassing my sister. And, uh, and I think that, you know... I, I got off really lucky in a way. <laughs> but it's amazing when you think about, you know, a song you wrote touches people in such a way yes. that they connect with you that way. Oh, definitely. You know, and, and, and if I remember correctly, I read something about you meeting Metallica. Yes. So you know what it's like to be a fan and Absolutely. to have that feeling of meeting one of your idols. Absolutely. And that was when I met Metallica, my, uh, one of my managers, John Zazula, and his wife, Marsha, formed a company that started, Megaforce Records started basically heavy metal <laughs> movement. You know, right. they had Anthrax, Metallica, Raven. Uh, I, I can just go on and on, Suicidal Tendencies. I mean, all of these bands that we looked up to, mm-hmm. um, you know, Johnny was managing. Uh, so to meet Metallica already, I knew all the stories from John and Marsha and their family but at the same time, I was a fan. And this is long before we ever covered their song, uh, which would uh, like a decade before it even. Right. And, uh, and I was absolutely starstruck, tongue-tied, absolutely starstruck. <laughs> what did success mean to you back then? I think back then, everything was a success to me. The fact that I could uh, p- pay for my vet bills for the veterinarian, the fact that I could pay my rent, anything. I had a car. I got my first car. I think I was like 30, 31 when I finally got a car. Um, to me, that was, I could have died happy, you know, really all, every step of the way. And I still feel that way, you know, like when I had a car, I could have died happy. When we did the Tonight Show, I could have died happy. You know, when I was uh, demonstrating martial arts on MTV, I could have died ha- Like everything was like amazing. And I thought it could be Did you be always taught. have that attitude? Probably. And where does that come from? My father. <laughs> I would say my father. He was a very... And also my mom. Uh, my parents really were... Um, uh, it's not just that they were spiritual. They were just really pragmatic, intelligent, thoughtful people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my father was a real uh, joker. He thought everything was funny, especially the things that he said. <laughs> and, uh, and I just think that that's probably, you know, environment is definitely probably where I would get that. Although my sisters would argue with me uh, because they probably wouldn't identify as optimists themselves. Well, when I look at your life and I look at the fact that you were adopted, like you just think things have happened to you. And, and who knows how do you explain that? Right, like it's sure, and and if they didn't come along, somebody else would have, and your life would have been, perhaps, completely different. Oh, absolutely, and I know my birth mom, uh, and adore her, and 
currently see her every Easter. Oh, really? Uh, she lives in Wasaga Beach with her husband. And, uh, and I have a half-sister and a half-brother uh, from her family. And, and that's fun. And it's fun uh, when I'm with her. Uh, we're so comfortable. Uh, it's like no time has passed. How did you connect with her, if you don't mind me asking? I wrote letters uh, to the High Commission for Canada in New Delhi. When I was 15, I started writing letters. Uh, I uh, very badly wanted to meet my birth mom. And uh, I was a very uh, incorrigible teenager for my parents. I was uh, disobedient, to put it mildly. (laughs) And I really wanted to connect with my birth mom. Not my birth father. You know, that wasn't my goal. It was I really wanted to connect with my birth mom. Uh, because I was having struggles as an adolescent, identifying with my family in in many ways, and now of course you know we all laugh about it. Um, I think that a lot of adolescents uh, kind of do go through that and mm-hmm. do that, uh, but I just really wanted to connect with her, and somehow it happened that my letter made it to the High Commission for Canada in New Delhi. The person who received my letter forwarded it to my biological grandmother, who then gave it to her daughter, who was my biological mother. And we talked on the phone. I think by the time all of that took, I think I was probably closer to 18 or so. And my parents bought me a plane ticket for my birthday to go meet my birth mom. Wow. And uh, and I've known her ever since. So when we toured Canada, we would hit the Toronto area or Barrie, probably twice a year. So for twice a year, I would see her every time we performed there. And uh, they weren't that great of visits because they were always so short. I was always working. Uh, but now that we've relocated to Ontario, it, I, I really enjoy uh, being able to visit with them and, and uh, have them be a part of uh, my life. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's lots of fun. Is that one of the reasons why you came back here? No, you know, it had no bearing on it, but it, it's definitely one of the uh, great benefits of living here. Um, musically, what are you doing right now? We just finished a new record, and uh, we've always been kind of writing and recording as we go along. Uh, I did a dance record in 2010 that was fun. We just did it as a fun project and didn't really do anything with some of those songs. In 2012, I did an acoustic record, and we started touring that acoustic record from time to time because I kept getting asked to do breast cancer uh, organization speeches, and they always wanted an acoustic show with it. So we did it, put out an acoustic record with the same producer that I did my first record with. Really? John Dexter, who has has the label. And and that was lots of fun. I co-wrote with him. Uh, also on a couple of records over the years. And so keeping those, keeping in contact with those uh, important people in my life has always been really uh, just such a blessing. It's just been so much fun. And we decided to make a new record last fall after we got off the road and really explored how it could be. And the songs were, for me anyway, what, what uh, Snake and Doug Fury were writing just really resonated with me, and, uh, and I'm very proud of it. We have one song that's about refugees. Uh, there's, there's a, of course, several love songs, uh, songs about injustice, and, yeah, it's just going to be lots of fun to put them out. 
the the philosophy of whatever that attracted you to punk way back when do you still live with that absolutely and i find that now you know the the bands that i used to follow uh i follow them now as they've evolved into grown-ups um you know because we all just kept growing older but our our kind of things that that we're passionate about remain the same and there was a band called shelter uh that i followed just i was a devotee i love this band they were Hare krishnas and they were straight edge and they were you know very influential uh and me i identified a lot with them and now they're all yoga instructors and meditation teachers and they're involved in a variety of different uh, centers across India and, and New York and everything. And and that's just been uh, very fun to keep following the same, the same people as their life trajectory and their path and their story keeps evolving. I feel like I keep evolving with them. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you did mention about the cancer, mm-hmm. um, and it probably wouldn't be right if I don't mention that, but you're a survivor. Tell me mm-hmm. about that experience of living through that and and how it's changed who you are today well you know I think that when I was diagnosed I was very relieved in a way because I had done probably 300 shows a year for 12 years straight without a break without a vacation okay I have to ask about that tell me about that (laughs) discipline to do that kind of a schedule well that's what it was required and again it's milestones that you keep that keep you going when you're on a tour you know, the agent calls the manager and says, I know she's on a tour and it ends in Detroit, but we can be picked up on another tour. It starts in Windsor the very next day. And so, and then it just continues. And that's kind of how your, how your life keeps going. And, uh, and it's what you do. It's your life. It's your lifestyle. Uh, you have breaks here and there, but we just, I had just always worked and we had formed a music company, uh, with, uh, Bodog, uh, so we formed Bodog Music, and then started developing these television shows. So Bodog Fight was one of them. It was a bit of a uh, parallel to the UFC uh, fight shows, and um, and I was in Costa Rica, and I was in uh, Russia as the basically the hosts interviewing all these martial artists in between doing the rock tours. And besides that, there was a Battle of the Bands show with uh, uh, John Lydon, who's Johnny Rotten. And and it was just, it just never stopped. Work never stopped. And so when I was diagnosed, I had just gotten married. And I was very relieved because I thought, I get to be home. That's all I thought is I get to be home with my dogs. Uh, and I get to be home with my brand new husband. Uh, and I mean, that relationship didn't last. It wouldn't have anyway. I think that being home and having breast cancer uh, just hurried up that process a little bit, which was a great blessing. Um, but I still made a record because I didn't know what else to do with my myself being home. I just knew how to work. And that seems to be the way you are, like you're constantly doing things. And I love it. You know, I... Uh, I just love it. I, I think that it's always been the, the perfect job for me. You know, I think that now it's very daunting for a young person to go into music uh, or or any art form, photography, painting, writing, 
because it's it, it's so difficult in the sea of millions of other people who are creating art uh, to to be paid for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that it will really is much more difficult now than when I was a young person. I don't know if this is a fair question, but you've had success. What do you attribute that to? What is the key behind that? Having a good time, really. I think if you enjoy what you're doing, they say, and it's so true, you'll never work a day in your life. I mean, there's nothing that could be a truer thing. If I was going back to being a dishwasher tomorrow, uh, I had a great time as a dishwasher. I loved it. It was hilarious. You know, uh, nobody thought I spoke English, of course. And, and, the, and the waitresses all looked like, you know, Dolly Parton to me. And it was always funny. We were always horsing around, and, and I loved my coworkers, and, and we had a routine. And anything that you do, uh, you, can, you can be successful at if you laugh, if you stay healthy, and if you're able to, you know, keep the lights on basically, and pay the rent, you're a success in this world, in this big, terrible world with all the things that could go wrong at any given time. Uh, a success is partly getting through the day mm-hmm. and partly getting through the day with a smile. Um, the other thing you did not too long ago was write a book. Mm-hmm. How difficult a process was that to actually go back in your life and figure out what you wanted to share, what you didn't, and to actually put it down on paper? It was extremely difficult. Lyric writing is really easy because you can enshroud your pain in a metaphor. You don't have to be specific. You can be very vague. And, uh, and somehow uh, you're insulated in a way. It's very self-protective. And to write the memoir, which I was kind of badgered into doing by my manager, uh, I had no so desire. Is this the same manager as before? Like, is yes, it... he's still my manager. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I never wanted to write a memoir. I thought I'm only 40 years old. This is embarrassing, you know, that I'm so conceited that I want to write this memoir. And I just thought it was kind of ridiculous. But um, somehow, you know, Harper Collins got involved, and uh, and they talked me into it, uh, my manager and the editor. And so writing the stories, again, without that layer of um, kind of make-believe that lyrics tend to have, it, it wasn't triggering to me because I didn't feel like I was revealing anything that people didn't know. You know, I had always done lyrics a little bit autobiographical. Uh, so they knew all of the stories and... Uh, it was just a long process. I didn't know how to use a computer program. I hand wrote everything and then had to transcribe it into the computer. And I couldn't type. I didn't know how to use italics. You know, all these things. And it made the process take a very long time. Uh, working with Jim Gifford at HarperCollins uh, as the editor, he was so um, practical, but he was also very... Uh, very kind and really allowed me to tell my story uh, and use my voice. He didn't want to ever make it not my voice. And, and so it was, again, like my introduction to music, it was an extremely nurturing uh, process. Uh, now I've just finished a book of poetry, the first one I've ever written, and uh, I'm still doing a work in progress, which is a book about cancer and how to basically uh, survive the treatment and survive diagnosis and beyond. 
And there's also YouTube videos on Cypher, right? Yes, that's right. And that's uh, something I was asked to do. There's eight episodes. I'm in one of them. Uh, But that was a remarkable uh, group of people who are behind that, uh, trying to, I guess, show mental health uh, challenges that different artists have had in their own careers. And that was great. And working with Decisive, who's a rapper, uh, I was a big fan of his, of course. And to be able to collaborate with him was a lot of fun. Well, I have to tell you, um, I didn't know a lot about you. I've, I've read most of the book. And, oh, cool. And, and you're, you're an inspirational person. You know, oh. the, the life you have led is very nice. quite Thank moving. It's very kind. Um, but, but it is. Like, I, I, I'm in awe of you, of what you've gone through and, and the way you've shared that with people, whether it be the YouTube videos or the book. Fantastic. Or your music. So thank Fantastic. you so much for doing this. Oh, thank I'm you. I'm thrilled that you had the chance to come by. Me too. It was thank an so honor. Much. It was an honor. Thank you.